Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Christine Gingaro. Ms. Gingaro is a professor of voice and music literature at Los Angeles City College, and she's the author of Listening to Stanley Kubrick, the music in his films. Well, when I was um, when I was a youngster, I, I I credit my interest in music to three pieces of music that that really kind of got me into into it. And one of them would be Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Another would be Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, and the soundtrack to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would be the third for that. I love um, that soundtrack. Oh, wow. It's great. It is. It's 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 lush. It's beautiful, and the themes are so interesting. And and I was a huge fan of 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I mean, um, Temple of Doom came out when I was ten, so I got the cassette of the soundtrack for my for Christmas that year, and I pretty much wore the thing out. I mean, I just loved it, and that was it. That was for me. That was sort of solidified my love of film music, my love of John Williams. Also, of course, I love that guy. Um, but it wasn't until, and my dad's a record collector, so what he, he sort of aided and abetted this passion by just coming up with soundtrack albums for stuff. Mm. And he knew that I liked classical music, so the, the two of the first albums he ever gave to me were the soundtrack to 2001 and the soundtrack to Clockwork Orange. Oh, wow. Wow. So, well, and those just blew my mind. Well, to tell you how much of a geek I am. Uh, because you mentioned Temple of Doom. There's sometimes when I'm driving in my car, and and I just start to hum dun 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's short round theme. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes. Uh, but yeah, and and you've done. I mean, I think you did a uh, a thesis project or something on Clockwork Orange as well years ago, right? That's true. Yes. When I was finishing up my doctorate at USC a few years ago. 2005, I, I decided on, I was going to do classical music and film, and that was way too broad, so I kept getting smaller and smaller until I decided that what I really wanted to do was just delve into A Clockwork Orange. And so the, the my dissertation is a discussion of the music in the film, yes, but also in the novel, because it's mentioned, and in the musical version that the author of, of the novel, Anthony Burgess, wrote after the movie came out, sort of almost like a way to reclaim the text as his own, but he was also a composer, so he wrote music for it. And I just kind of discussed the way that the music functions differently in all three versions, because obviously you can hear it in the movie, but you can't hear it in the novel. Um, but it was a great, it was a fantastic um, uh, topic in that I got up every day and wanted to write about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some people find that, that difficult, writing dissertations, but I, I, because the topic was so fun, I loved it. Go on, what were you saying? Oh yeah, as long as you're passionate about something, it's not work. Yeah, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, and, and Clockwork is interesting because it kind of bridges that that middle ground because Kubrick used to hire uh, composers to do his scores earlier on, and then he went more and more to using pre-existing classical music. And Clockwork is that kind of middle ground where he brought in a composer to rework classical themes. 
Yes, so and and you see the same thing in in Barry Lyndon as well. Like the just the idea that he said, okay, forget composers. I'm just going to work with an arranger because mm. I want this music to to fit my scenes. I mean, I think in general that that moving away from working with composers and moving towards working with pre-existent music just allows allowed him that sense of control that he seemed to like so much in in, mm-hmm. in most of his of his work that that feeling of I want to work with a known quantity and I think you're absolutely right in saying that that Clockwork Orange is that that middle ground between working with a composer but also being able to kind of manipulate what 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 he was given. Well, and you think of when when a director hires on a composer, I mean the composer is is at the service of the director in mm-hmm. the film. But when you use pre-existing music, I mean, to what extent was Kubrick um, a, a slave to the pre-existing music? I mean, where where he would have to devise and edit scenes specifically to match the music he chose? Well, it became sort of an obsession, I think, um, once once he was working on 2001, and finally, I think that was the break, you know, for him was that, you know, he'd hired Alex North to write the score and then just decided he wanted to do this instead. And, of course, you know, in hindsight, seems like the right choice because we all love the way that it came out. Um, but then, and after, you know, A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, just sort of moving more towards that ideal of having that music be completely sort of fluid for him. And that's why he hired Leonard Rosenman to um, to arrange the music that he chose, the pre-existent music that he chose for Barry Lyndon, so that it would fit perfectly. Um, you know, and I, I in the archives there's all of this information about, okay, we need three more seconds here, to, you know, to fit the scene that he wanted, or we need this to happen, we need this cut to happen on this drum beat, so mm-hmm. that he was very aware of that when he was shooting. And when you get to The Shining, he has a, a music editor, Gordon Sainforth, who whose basic job it was to sort of cut the scenes and the music so that they worked out together. And and I think what he did was um, he sort of gave Kubrick maybe four or five different choices, everything cut together where where he manipulated the the scene to fit the music or the music to fit the scene. And then Kubrick would review them and and figure out which one he thought was best for that particular scene. Right. You know, and it makes sense to me, too, because... Uh, I mean, w- when you're using pre-existing music um, in, in pre-production, you can kind of sit and listen and dream and and really meticulously devise exactly where you, how you want to utilize it. Whereas yes. working with a composer, you you don't have the music prior to shooting uh, most I'm most sure. times. Didn't Quentin Tarantino say something like, whenever he writes a movie, he just sits down with a bunch of albums? Yeah. <laughs> he, he listens yeah. to music ahead of time. I just think I think it's a really interesting thing when a filmmaker is so interested in in the music. Mm-hmm. Because it's not always the case. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 there are there are filmmakers that have no idea how to. How to talk to a composer? <laughs> Very true. Express, Very true. Express what they want musically. But it was interesting because I was—you you said something about Tarantino, and I was listening to the, the interview with sound editors of his latest film, and, and they said, you know, we've worked with him from the beginning, and and it really is true. He he pulls the inspiration from his record collection, and sometimes the drops in the movie are, are directly from the LPs. They're not cleaned up or digitized or anything. Right. It's, you know, it's amazing. Um, so you've, I'm sure you've heard 
yeah, of course you have Alex North's uh, original score to 2001. Yes. Uh, um, how, in your mind, does Kubrick's use of the classical music uh, kind of e- exceed what he could have done with Alex North's scores? Score. You know, it's very interesting. The thing that I was discovering as I was looking through both, you know, because the um, the wonderful um, Entrada recording that John Burlingame, who who helped me uh, with this particular chapter on 2001, uh, wrote the liner notes to. He actually gives you a way to uh, to sync it up so you can watch the film with the other clips. Mm. And um, and what I noticed is that there's just a whole lot more music in that early part in the Dawn of Man sequence and. Um, Kubrick really used a lot of silence, and it, it's so striking the amount of just ambient noise that you get. And I think it's just it's so much more effective to show their level of development and their isolation and their you know the loneliness and the scariness of being you know prey for predators. Um, and there was just something about these moments that were. Had had music that Alex North had put in there, and then was suddenly silent, um, and that to me was so striking. And and it was it was dramatically speaking the better choice because it allowed you to kind of it was sort of neutral. It was um you know an emotionally neutral moment. And it kind of lulls you into the reality of the uh, of that setting. And you know yes. it, it just dawned on me from what you're saying because throughout the series. One of the common themes of Kubrick's work seems to be an unwillingness to dictate to the audience how they're supposed to feel. And Mm. I think a lot of times um, when we go to the movies, we're we're programmed to know exactly how we're supposed to feel in any given moment. And uh, and so I would think that his use of music... um, was never a crutch. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't used for that purpose. Very true. I mean, he allows. There's a lot of points at which you're, and especially in some, something like, um, you know, and, and especially in something like 2001, where it's sort of very cold and and analytical, and this is the future, and it, it's it's not very emotional. I mean, you can see it in the interactions, the human interactions, the, the few that there are, um, just sort of seem you know, a little bit inhuman and um, and allowing there to be a lot of silence in those moments um, really, really kind of allows the viewer to kind of think, well, okay, so what am I supposed to feel about this? Instead of having that spoon fed to them, you know, here's a lush right. orchestral score that makes you scared or happy or, and, and it really does, um, I think for a lot of reasons, especially in something like, let's say, Paths of Glory, um, an earlier film, the melody and harmony this to Kubrick I feel like is humanity and if you take that away you know, you take away the humanist just the way that in that original in that score that was written by Gerald Freed um, there's no melody until the very end it's just all percussion and it's mm. because the men are at war on a battlefield where there is no humanity right and at the at the end that's that's probably the most the most kind of the closest he'll ever get to sentimentality in any of his movies. The yes. the of glory. Yeah. Yes. It means all the men are crying and they're humming along and, and it's it's almost like they forgot they were people. You know, and suddenly mm. this woman gets up and she reminds them. It's like they're a cat calling and they're and you know, they're being sort of rude to her and then she starts to sing in a very small voice and it it just all of a sudden awakens them to their humanity and it's so effective because we haven't had a melody the entire movie. Right. 
Yeah. Do, uh, you know, I remember reading um, an interview with Goldsmith, Jerry Goldsmith, where mm. where he thought it was an idiotic move for Kubrick to to kind of throw out Alex North's score and go with classical. Uh, yeah. Was there a great resistance uh, among the film music industry for for what Kubrick did with music in his films? I think so, and and even Gerald Fried, um, you know, has said in interviews, and he's just the super nicest guy, you know, to talk to about this stuff. He'll just, you know, he'll just talk your ear off. Um, but what he said was was that um, just like Jerry Goldsmith says, if a if the music is not tailor made for the film, then it's going to bring you out of the film, you know, and it's going to take you away from that. And I think that's that's an artistic, um, and it's a, it's a very good argument, I think. Um, but I think part part of that is also, well, this is my art that you're not letting me do because, you know, Beethoven's been dead a long time. He doesn't need another check, you know. And um, But I think also that film music scoring is done by such a small amount of people. You know, there's just, it's a very, 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 very small community. And just the idea that, well, we don't really need you guys anymore. I think that's that was what maybe they were feeling. And of course, that's not true. Of course, there's there's room for everything in in the um, in the scoring world. There's room for pre-existent stuff and newly written music. And I would be it would be awful if we didn't have newly written. Just such a wonderful art form. But you know, I think that idea that there's room for everyone isn't always what everybody feels. Well, and and I I know that Kubrick's expressed in the past that um, you know why would I go. Uh, to composers to write something where where I have the greatest masterpieces ever written at my disposal, right? You know, yeah. with, with all of these classical selections. Um, but and yet, I mean, th- these these themes are familiar to us in a movie like Two Thousand One or Clockwork Orange. But after those movies, uh, it kind of hit the zeitgeist. Uh, yeah. We cannot separate them from the actual movie. <laughs> It's true. It's true. I mean, I've been I've been watching the commercials for the latest Die Hard movie, and it's it's as if they own Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Mm, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and for me, the most uh, remarkable kind of soundscape in any movie is The Shining. I think mm. the use of music and sound in The Shining is, I, I think it's the most the most sterling use of music in his career for me personally. Um, what, what are your impressions of, of how he used music in that one particularly? It's incredibly smart. It was just very astute observations of what an audience would feel when they were listening to this music. And some of it is is just very much more sound than melody or harmony and um, a very extended techniques on the string instruments, for example, like playing a violin in a very odd way or having all these percussion instruments that you wouldn't normally hear, including one that has a, um, a piece that has a, um, a musical saw in it, you know, as if, you know, the saw without teeth on it that you play with a bow. Um, and it's just these sort of weird sounds, quote-unquote weird sounds. Um, he, he had this notion that if he put this in the score... I think he he thought it would sort of put people on edge. You know, it was not the kind of thing that necessarily made you feel scared, but just made you feel uneasy because this is an odd, odd thing that you don't usually hear. And I think I think horror movies now do this all the time, sort of without even thinking about it. But his idea was to sort of take this 
20th century avant-garde music that was more noisy than melodic and really do something um, incredible with it, which is that creating that atmosphere. And I got to say, in writing The Shining chapter, I've watched The Shining numerous times, and I remember being home on a Saturday night watching it for the umpteenth time and just feeling all like, you know, shivery and, and uneasy mm. and thinking, I have to finish this chapter soon <laughs> because I just <laughs> couldn't bear to hear it more. It's just, you know, it's that he makes that transformation that Jack Torrance goes through. Um, he makes it sort of physical and visceral through the music. And I think it was just a, a brilliant choices. And I know that, that when he was, um, when he was reading the book, he was in, in talks with Wendy Carlos about some musical ideas. And they had done numerous albums of Rachel Elkind and, um, and Wendy Carlos had done numerous albums of sound effects and musical effects to try to like get what he was into before a frame was shot. Right, right. You know, and, and I've I've seen her. Um, I've really wanted to purchase because she she came out with a I think a two CD set of all the kind of unreleased cues from that in Clockwork. I've really wanted to purchase that set, but it's it's something like three hundred dollars. Oh yeah, because I think I think there's just a few a few copies left. It was a very very small printing, and um and luckily I mean it's almost it's you know when I went to the Kubrick archive um they have them and you can listen to them and they're just you know I just remember taking notes and writing down well this one just sounds like what the buzzing of insects and this one sounds like um, and some of the key I think three of the cues made it into the film but they're very you know transitional and not except for the DS area of course which is which was on the very first album that they did and sort of you know was very inspiring to Kubrick and he kept it for everything and uh, in the interviews that I've been doing lately with, with film composers for this series we're in the midst of now, um, the point comes up a lot that how film composition has changed over the years and how more and more today it seems like just an extension of the sound effects where it's almost indistinguishable from the sound effects. And, and really uh, that quality kind of distinguishes The Shining too. Mm. It's it's very true because sometimes you'll hear something and it'll be unclear if that's is that something did that did he just make that sound with the axe or is that something that's in the in the score and there were times when I said all right let me just listen to this piece by itself because I can't really tell what's happening here what is the you know what what is the ambient noise on screen and what is happening because it's it's almost indistinguishable uh, in those particular parts because you you just can't tell. And he uses. I mean, I'm thinking of. Um, I'm thinking of Barry Lyndon, which I think it's uh, maybe the main theme. Is it the Sarabande? Um, yes, the handle. Yeah, and then and then in Eyes Wide Shut, the Ligeti. Yes. Uh, they and they reoccur time and time and time again. Yes. Um, do you? How do you think that that? I mean, do you, how does he avoid a feeling of kind of bland or boring repetition by using those motifs over and over again in these films? It's, a, it's an excellent question. And the, the, the handle Sarabond shows up something like 11 times in the film. And there are different versions of it. So Leonard Rosenman went ahead and, and sort of made different versions where this one is just keyboard and cello, and this one is lots of strings. So he, he made it so that the instrumentation was different in each version, and he made it so that... Sometimes there, there's um, two particular 
um, instances where there, it's accompanying a duel, and there's all these string tremolos like that sort of almost mimic the tremoring, the the nervousness of the people who are who are about to duel, um, and so it changes character each time, um, and as and, and in the eyes wide shut, the ligety does not change; it is the same, but it it sort of arises every time. Um, I mean, the, the the protagonist feels like very nervous, like his heart's beating, somebody's following him, or he's a, he doesn't know what's going to happen. The crowd has just unmasked him, and it's sort of this thing that rises up, and it becomes sort of his inner, his his whatever's happening inside of him is sort of made external by this music, and having it unchanged, you know, while everything is changing around it, I think there's sort of two approaches to it: having the same thing come back and have the circumstances be different versus in Barry Lyndon having the same thing come back and having it change almost every time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How much is did he consider the origin, the origins of the music he selected and, and how those origins played into the themes he was exploring? I, I, I tell you why I ask this, because I don't know if you've heard all the kind of the theories about something like The Shining, but there, there's oh, a whole yeah. theory of of, uh, of the Shining actually being kind of a masked parable to the Holocaust. Sure. Yes. Uh, and, and a lot of times they point to his use of certain composers for the Shining as as a reflection of that. Um, yes, like Penderecki and yes. Ligeti and, and folks like that. And I, yeah, I've, 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 there's an entire book just about such things. Um, and um, I think it's an interesting theory, but. In, in discussing the music with Jan Harlan, who is, of course, uh, um, Kubrick's brother-in-law and the, the brother of Christiana, um, and, and he w- served as executive producer on the films from, I think, Clockwork Orange on, um, his, his his feeling, and he is sort of one of the folks who brought Kubrick music to listen to. Like, here, this might be good for something. You know, we'd make tapes of things for him so that Kubrick could listen in the car kind of thing. Um and the way that he tells it, um, Kubrick knew nothing of these origins, knew nothing of this history. He was just interested in the sound and the sound alone. Now, I don't know if that's entirely true. I don't know if there's if, if that's an exaggeration. But the, the official party line is that neither did he know about about the sort of stories that went with it, nor did he particularly care. He just it, it, it was only what worked for the film. And in fact, there's something that I talk about in the book where he was considering music for Eyes Wide Shut, and he had chosen a song by Wagner. Now, Wagner, of course, is famous for his operas, but he wrote a few songs, and it just so happens that the songs that he wrote were um, written with the lyrics. Um, the lyrics were penned by Matilda Weisendonk, who was someone that Wagner possibly had an affair with. And um, so this idea of a song used in a film about infidelity by two people who are probably maybe having an, a sort of um, amorous tryst behind their spouse's backs um, seems so perfect. I mean, it's just a perfect um, thing to do. You have to have that. It has to be in there. Well, what happened was he had had um, Dominic Harlan play a version without the singer because the singer would have been distracting. And he used it. He cut it into the film. He loved it. He loved it. He loved it. And then apparently he threw it away six weeks before he died and said, I'm not going to do that, um, and instead used a different piece of music. And um, and, and I, I said to, to, to Jan Harlan, I said, that's just too good. 
you know, it's just too perfect. And he said, yeah, but he didn't really know. <laughs> Which I think is, you know, like, I, how could you not know? Um, but I don't know if he, like, willing, like, like, willfully sort of kept himself ignorant of these things so he wouldn't be influenced by them and was just, it was all about the results. How did it fit yeah. into the film? Um, or, as I said, I don't, I don't know how, how true that is and, and we'll never know. Um, his, I, I'm sorry I'm going backwards, but I, I forgot to ask you about how he worked with composers early in his career. I mean, people. Like, oh, sure. People like Nelson Riddle on Lolita, and uh, because he was a an obsessive tinker. Uh, yes. <laughs> did, did he drive composers crazy? Well, I think the reason, one of the reasons why Gerald Fried didn't work with him after Pass of Glory was that it was just becoming very difficult. And I think the reason why Gerald Fried did many scores for him, so he did The Killing, Killer's Kiss, Paths of Glory, and, of course, the first short. Um, I think the reason why they were able to work together so many times is the first couple of times, Kubrick really didn't know what he was doing. You know, and he, you know, Gerald Fried did the music for Fear and Desire as well. And he did a fine job, and he's a fine, fine composer. Retired now and still alive, but, um, you know, worked in television a lot after after working with Kubrick. And um, I think the first couple of times he just said, do, you know, do what you think is right, man. Well, it'll be fine. And then I think after that, maybe after, after maybe during the killing, he said, no, it should be more like this, or I want it more like that. And I think they were driving each other insane by Paths of Glory. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, and, and he said, I think he said something like, I had to justify every note. By the time mm. they got to Paths of Glory, I had to justify every note. And that's that's a difficult position for a composer to be in, because as you said before, um, they really are hired guns. They have to sort of serve the film, but at the same time, they are artists themselves. So it's a, I think it's a difficult thing to be able to do, and I think after that, after um, after Gerald Fried, <clears throat> excuse me, moved on, you know, he did work with Nelson Riddle and he worked with Laurie Johnson on Strange Love, but in those in those films, and of course Spartacus, he had Alex Norris, um, who was already attached. He really didn't have um, any say in that particular um, choice, but of course the the music for Spartacus is gorgeous. I mean, it's yeah. just, I mean, over-the-top lush, and it's constantly behind, you know, the the film. But I think Kubrick worked with that. You know, there's a lot of correspondence between them about what what he wanted and where he wanted uh, stuff to be, and there were lots of places where Kubrick thought music should be. So he was sort of thinking along those lines of the epic film, and I think that worked out well for Spartacus. And I think after that he thought, you know, I'm not so crazy about, this wall-to-wall score thing, and Nelson Riddle what made his you know made his money mostly as an arranger. So again, he's working with somebody who isn't used to kind of doing their own thing. He's used to kind of working with other people's art, and I think it really worked out well for Lolita, which just happened to be on PCM this morning. Um, yeah. <laughs> I caught the end of it, and I heard that love theme. And of course, the love theme was a suggestion of the producer because his brother wrote it. Right, right, right. I remember talking to James Harris about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he, you know, the he, the guy who wrote it, um, you know, ended up we we know him for writing the theme from Spider Man, you know, Spider Man, Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote that, you know, and uh, he wrote this sort of schmaltzy love theme. Yeah. Um, and 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 so I think Cooper was already the the seeds were already being planted that you could use something that already existed and kind of manipulate it to work with the film, and this way you really didn't have to worry about two artistic egos clashing. 
Well, I'm sure there, there's a, a fair amount of, of snobbery involved on all sides of this, but sure. uh, w- where a, a lot of classical music aficionados might look down on films as an inferior art form. So how dare you use the music for your horror film or whatever. But in the long run, I mean, I think Kubrick's use of classical only only benefited that form of music. Oh, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's so incredible about 2001 is the amount of record sales that it generated. I mean, and these were these were not easily digestible pieces of classical music, with the exception of just the beginning of, of the Alto Sprach Zarathustra from Strauss. I mean, that, that piece goes on for like 40 minutes after that, but of course we, don't, we only get to hear that, that opening bit. Um, and and that, uh, the idea that, 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 a, that a soundtrack could sell like that, I think, blew everybody's mind, which is why they came out with the music inspired by 2001 album right. that came out after that. And then another record company said, if you like 2001, you're going to love this stuff, including a an, an, uh, recording of uh, the, the Strauss again. And it was just, it sort of, I don't think anybody realized it was going to generate money like that, that you would did you be able to sell classical music and it was going to sell like that. And of course, Wendy Carlos, before she did Clockwork Orange, experienced the same thing with Switched on Bach, which mm-hmm. outsold all recordings of Bach up to that point combined, <laughs> like one recording of, of of Bach on a keyboard suddenly outsells everything that had gone before it, which was just unheard of. And and to, for me, personally, as a young person, I mean, that was the first time I'd ever heard Richard Strauss. I mean, I mean, the, the first time I listened to that album, I listened to it obsessively. I mean, I'm, here I am, I'm, I'm like 11 years old listening to Ligeti. What an odd thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just should be listening to, you know, to, you know, tweeny bop. But no, I'm listening to classical music because I was just so taken. And this is before I'd even seen the films. Well, uh, you've been so generous with your time, but I, I, we need to talk about the popular music if you have a few more moments. Absolutely, uh, yes. To spare. Um, our next episode of the series actually is, is delving into Full Metal Jacket. Oh, and yeah. Full Metal Jacket is. Uh, very interesting to me for its use of popular music. How, what do you think distinguishes his musical choices in this from the other movies made about the Vietnam conflict? Well, it's just—it's such a the the way that he uses music. It it so makes it very realistic. Of this might be what what's happening there, or it's sort of an ironic counterpoint to what's happening on screen. And whatever the whatever the music is, it sort of makes you take one second to kind of think about it. Like, it's not the kind of music that fades so easily into the background. It's the kind of thing that all of a sudden you're hearing the words and thinking, hmm, why this? And it, I think it's very provocative. I think the, the music that he uses provides counterpoint to scenes or commentary on scenes in a way that he really didn't do in his later years. I mean, from from 2001 until Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket is the only film in that collection of late movies that has anything like that soundtrack. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. nothing else that really compares to it. I mean, I think um, in my book I put it in with Lolita. You know, I, I sort of put those uh, Lolita and Strange Love. I put them all together because they're sort of more of a piece than the other stuff is. And I think that idea of using pop music to 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 be commentary. I think you see that also in 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 Eyes Wide Shut to a certain extent. 
like as he's going through, um, or as, as the as the um, the couple is dancing, you hear all of these standard songs behind them that kind of provide commentary on the conversation that they're having, and it's almost to the point that it's it's almost too cute. <laughs> <laughs> that he's right. sort of putting in these things that, that have a title that you'd say, oh, I only have eyes for you and we're dancing and we're looking at each other. You know, and then there's another, you know, um, <laughs> and there's another thing where it's it's sort of like, you know, it's a flirty song and they're flirting with other people, not their spouses. And it gets to be this sort of cute commentary. And I think in, in Full Metal Jacket, what's happening there is that those, those um, that commentary is, is not so obvious. I mean, it's there, but it makes you think about it. Like the first time we get to Vietnam, we hear these boots are made for walking. Which is this? Which is the cue that most fascinates me? Because actually, the I, I mean, that's such a jarring cut. Yeah. Uh, after D'Onofrio kills himself, and then it cuts to to Vietnam, and and accented by Nancy Sinatra's song, it it's just it's jarring, and and you're right, very provocative. And it makes you think, I mean, who are we following? We're following a woman, and she's walking, you know, and she's walking, and she's got attitude, and she's going to flirt with these soldiers. And it's just, it's it's such a, it's almost, it's like a female empowerment song, you know? But then you get this female who is in Vietnam, and she is a native Vietnamese person, and so she's working the war to make money by being a prostitute, you know? And it's sort of like, it's sort of a question mark female empowerment. <laughs> you listen to yeah. this in you listen to this this song and it makes you think, hmm, is that the commentary? Like what's what's he saying here? And it and it there's no answer, of course. It's just sort of your own interpretation. But I mean the same thing happens at the end with the Mickey Mouse Club theme song. Mm. You know, they've just had this very traumatic experience and they've got this sort of weird joy of like living through it and they're singing happy but at the same time, there's there's very mixed emotions about that, and then it kind of allows you to 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 fill in your own explanation as to why that was used or or how that made you feel. It is a great uh, emotional contrast, but it, but there's also a, a it drips with irony. I mean, he's a lot of his films are are, are I mean, he's a great ironist, and I, I also think about in that tradition. I think about we'll meet again and how that's used. At the conclusion of Doctor Strange, absolutely beautifully, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. you know, originally they were supposed to have like a bouncing ball so you could sing along with it. <laughs> oh, they were going like the that they were going to do that. It's like the ultimate dark joke. <laughs> yeah, know, it's, and it's just oh. when you, you you can't even believe he got away with it. I mean, when you when you watch Strange Love now, I mean, I, I can't imagine the same kind of thing being made today in the same way. Like, I don't I don't think that would happen. I don't think it would test well. I don't think it would. You know, I don't think anybody would think it would make any money. So it's just, it's so amazing that he did it when he did it, and and of course to to adapt a a a novel that was not funny and that was not a dark comedy and that was totally serious and to kind of turn it on its head a little bit was I mean it's it's astounding. Strange Love is is a sort of I think I mean I know it's appreciated, but I don't think it's appreciated quite enough for what it did. Oh, and you're the right, bra- the irony the is there. Movies. Yeah, one of the bravest movies ever made. And I think that his, his his choice to do it as a satire, when he was originally going to do it as a straight drama, but uh, but satire, I think, brings out a, a lot more truths than a drama would about the subject. 
so I, I mean, it's an incredibly brave movie, Strange Love. There's a song, uh, one more song that I want to ask you about um, sure. from The Shining, uh, and it, it's a song that fascinates me, and it works so well. And I, I want to know whatever you know about the song and how he found it and how it played into the movie. Uh, Midnight, the Stars, and You. Sure. Uh, oh my gosh, what a what an incredibly creepy song <laughs> in that movie. It's it's true, and you know the okay. So Ray Noble and his orchestra. Um, this was a recording, and what Kubrick had done before the film was was made was that he had sort of sent his scouts out to find music from the, from this time period, and um, there there are letters in the archives and just lists and lists and lists. Like these are the most popular songs for this you know forty years. And um, he had gone out and just asked and gotten recordings and and, and had made so much uh, of a of a an effort to find what was popular for that time period. Now this doesn't exactly work in the time period. This is sort of about ten or twelve years later than the July Fourth, nineteen twenty one party that it's sort of supposed to be about. This is a nineteen thirty two song, and. Um, Ray Noble and his orchestra were fronted by Al Boley, who is, I think, a South um, South African-born crooner, one of the very first crooners that we had, you know, pre pre Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. um, and um, he had uh, done the uh, the vocals for this particular. Um, they called him the Big Swoon, um, Al Boley, which I think is just a great nickname. Oh, um, the best nickname, yeah, yeah. And so, the, you know, the, the lyrics speak about it's a sort of night dancing under the stars and the the singer is, promises that he'll remember it for the rest of his life and and it's it's of course captures the ending perfectly as you know it is the the song that jack torrance remembers forever because in a sort of weird time paradox he ends up back in this 1921 picture when he was just here in you know 1980 or whatever it was mm. um and it's um it's it's it is a sort of, um, and the recording too is sort of a creepy-ish, echoey recording where it's almost ethereal, sung, sung, it, you know, sung from beyond the grave sound. It has this sort yeah. of odd sound to it, um, you know, and mixed that way on purpose so that it d- does have this sort of ethereal, ghost-like sound. Um, and of course, as we know, that there was supposed to be a different ending. You know, there was supposed to be an epilogue where you know, Danny and Wendy are in the hospital and Omen comes to visit them. Um, and and that got cut in favor of this, you know, very, very slow pushing in onto onto that picture while this is playing echoey in the background. I think it's just an amazing choice. And what's really interesting is I, um, day to day, I, I, I teach college and I teach voice, I teach singing. And one of my students knew about my book and she brought in Midnight and the Stars and you to sing. And it was so interesting to hear this in a sort of different context than in the film. And on the surface, it, it's very sweet. But, of course, you know, the, the the music is sort of ruined for me at this point because it always kind of makes me feel a little bit like I'm about to have my mind blown by this, you know, by something like this picture where Jack Torrance is in this picture. How is he possibly in this picture? You know, yeah, if he's yeah. frozen out in the maze, it doesn't make any sense. And, of course, in the epilogue that, that was filmed but then cut was that they didn't find the body at all. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and you're, and then, then oh, the show that, you know, you get that shudder of like, they never found the body. Um, and that, you know, and it, it's, um, and all of the musical choices that are, you know, the party music, um, where they're in the, um, he's in the bathroom with the caretaker, well, who he thinks is the caretaker, and then he finds out that he's the caretaker. But they're all mixed so they all sound like they're happening outside of that room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think this is another case where that sound is so important, the way it sounds, not just not just the song itself, but how it's sort of mixed in the in the entirety it, of the other sound. Yeah, it sounds like it comes from a, a distant time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's funny that the that the every time you hear the voice of the big swoon you think of being chased by an axe. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's this sort of ironic thing. I mean, try to listen to you know Strauss and not see the the stars aligned and not see you know mm. not see a monolith and not you know and not see that triumphant moment of like it's just it, the way that, I mean and this is just true of the way that Kubrick used music is that it's so incredibly powerful but it becomes part of the music history itself. You know, yeah, and it yeah. and and it takes on this other life after the fact, which is why in my book I make it a point to kind of tell you the music history that Kubrick claimed to not have known, so that you know what you were dealing with in terms of like a um, a context ahead of time. And then, of course, what happens to it afterwards, which is that it becomes part of the story of that piece of music. Yeah. Well, the last question before I let you go: uh, if you were to choose. A couple of your favorite cues from Kubrick's films. What, what would they be? Oh, that is that is. You should have asked me that two days ago, because um, <laughs> that is that is a very difficult um, a difficult question. Um, there's a um, well, of course, I'm a I'm a huge huge fan of the the music of A Clockwork Orange. So I'd I'd probably have to say that. Um, the use of the Rossini overture uh, to the thieving magpie, um, which happens as he's they're having a, um, a physical fight with another gang. The Droogs are yes. having a fight with another gang. They sort of interrupt Billy Boy's gang about to sort of gang rape this girl, and she runs away, and then they fight with each other. And just, you know, the soundtrack to that uh, with with the Rossini is just perfect. And, of course, you know, it, there's, it comes back later. Um, and I think that is just, it's such an energetic piece of music. I absolutely adore it. Um, and I think it's so, so perfect for that. Um, I think in The Shining, there's, um, there's, I think it's a, it's definitely Penderecki. And I'm trying to remember which one it is. It, it takes place when, when she's got a bat and he's sort of, backing her up the stairs and she hits him with the bat and then, and then takes him yes. into into the um into the the the, the pantry and locks him in and, and it, um, it's like it's the sound of like plucking violin strings or something yeah i think it's polymorphia and it's just so creepy sounding and, yeah. it, and it goes all the way up until she sort of runs out to see if the snow cap she can take it out and she sees that it's been sabotaged and it actually Kubrick lets the, the piece play through twice. Let's he lets it play through all the way through twice, just because it's so perfect for that scene. It's just it, it it's the their discord on screen is perfectly rendered in this music, and you you can't believe it wasn't written for that. You can't believe it was written for something else. You know that's the yeah. that's the amazing thing. Yeah. And I think I think in the um, I think in two thousand one, it's just that cue 
when he realizes, when the Moon Watcher realizes that that bone can become a weapon, when he realizes that, wait, wait, we don't have to do this. We don't have to just yell at each other over this. We can, we can kill our own food. We can kill each other. And, and it's just, it's, it's such a double-edged sword about the way that we would never have gotten to that technology. I think that's the, that's the implication is that we make that cut from that bone to that orbiting satellite because that was the thing that got us to the next step. And that it's just so perfectly rendered in the music. The, just the, the low, slow opening of Strauss just kind of reaching up to this fever pitch and then this sort of like joyful we did it kind of moment at the end. And I think in terms of like using a piece of music that already existed, there is nothing that fits so perfectly besides that. That is just one of the most perfect musical moments I can think of. And again, it it, it kind of, in a way, it kind of drips with irony because it's um, it's this incredibly triumphant music. Uh, yes. Played at the moment when when man f- discovers he can use tools to kill, and yes. destroy. Uh, oh my God, I miss yeah. Kubrick. I miss Kubrick so much. I <laughs> know, <laughs> me too. It's just it, you know when I was writing the book, I, I found that the more I watched, I think the less a filmmaker, the more you watch a film, the less magic it has because you've seen it already. But the opposite is true of Kubrick's films, and I, I found myself loving them more after yeah. watching them a dozen times, you know, to, to do this. It's just you see something different every time, and you experience it differently each time, and it's it's always giving you something, which I think is just so extraordinary. I I couldn't agree more, um, and, and my, my appreciation of his films has, has only matured over the years as I've matured. Uh, so I, I completely agree. And Christine, I've had such a wonderful time talking to you. And uh, come back anytime you want to talk about music in, in movies. I, I would love to have you. <laughs> 